we're going to spend four weeks looking deeper into the character and the person of Jesus as he sets his face towards Jerusalem uh, and heads there. So let me read the passage we're going to deal with, Mark chapter 10. We're going to read, oh, sorry, I didn't tell you, from verse 32. Uh, the words will be up behind me if you don't have uh, any kind of Bible uh, with you. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. And taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And he will rise after three days. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, Allow us to sit at your right and at your left in glory. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. James called them over and said to them, sorry, Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, Whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, again, as we come uh, to your word, we thank you that you are amongst us, that you are alive, that you speak and you give us, through the work of the Spirit, you give us grace to hear your voice amongst us. You, you reveal your character, your nature, your person and the truth to us. And we pray again now as we sit uh, under your word that Holy Spirit, you would come and you would teach us, that you would speak to us and that you would give us these ears to hear what it is you're saying, that you would give us hearts that are receptive to receive the work that you want to do in us today. Open up our eyes, shake off any dullness that's in our spirits, that we would see you in your glory for who you are and everything that you want to teach us and show us today, we would get. We ask that you would do that now in Jesus' name. Amen. So the context of where this is, I explained some of it already. Uh, this is right at the end of Jesus' ministry and almost his life. He spent basically three years with the disciples, moving around, 
um, teaching, healing, doing everything else. And it says again and again in Mark, and, and they're going up to Jerusalem. His face is set towards Jerusalem. He's going, he's going. This is the third time that we re- re- read in Mark, the third time that he's now telling them what's going to happen um, to him. Uh, and this is, the, this is the account where he tells them in the most detail, look, I'm going to be handed over and they're going to flog me and spit on me and mock me and they're going to kill me. And then three days later, I'm going to rise again. And I mean, you would think if you heard that, it would be as clear as day, like, okay. But I mean, this is the third time they're hearing it and it, show, and it comes to pass that they, the disciples still don't understand what's going to happen to Jesus. And I suppose as a, as, as a preacher, this gives me a lot of confidence uh, that those who were the disciples of Jesus who lived with him, who heard this multiple times, didn't get it. So I have very low expectations of what people remember from any uh, sermons they preach. You almost want to preach the same sermon every week for like 52 weeks and, and see where that goes because I'm, I'm the same. I mean, I, I forget stuff. But uh, these disciples, they just show that they, they don't get it. But Jesus is resolute. So the context here, you see, and it's some interesting verses right at the beginning. We're not going to spend too much time in them there. But it says Jesus is walking on ahead of them, which is unusual. A lot of the times you see, particularly in the book of Mark, Jesus is behind. The disciples are going and Jesus is behind. It says he's out in front. And it says the people are afraid. They're terrified. They, there's something about the posture and the stature, maybe the look on his face or the way he's carrying himself. Because he hasn't yet told them again what's going to happen. But he's going to Jerusalem. Maybe the disciples are thinking, Jesus, maybe we should just stay clear of Jerusalem. Every time you go there, you know, you cause a bit of a ruckus and stuff. We're not really up for that. You know, heading there, Passover, lots of people. Maybe we should just skirt Jerusalem. It says he's, he is, his face is set. He is going. And they are terrified. They're, they're afraid of something in the nature of Jesus. He's just set and he's going. And so that's why he pulls them aside and he starts to explain to them why he needs to, why he needs to go there. But we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about that. What I want us to focus in on what I, is what I think this passage is actually all about. And I think this passage is about servanthood. I think this passage is about servanthood. And you may not hear many messages on servanthood. You've probably not sat down and thought recently about how you could be a better servant because there's something that's culturally jarring, and you're gonna, we're going to explore it a bit this morning, about being a servant. We don't like serve, being servants or slaves of all, as Jesus would say. We're going to dive into that. But this passage is about servanthood, and what I want us to look at today is what does servanthood in the way of Jesus look like? What is servanthood in the way of Jesus, following Jesus? What does it actually look like from this passage? And the first thing that servanthood in the way of Jesus looks like is that it's others-centered, not self-centered. It's centered around others, not around ourselves. Have a look at these guys here, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Sons of Thunder was their nickname that Jesus gave them. Uh, You've got to have some spark and pizzazz for the king of heaven to give you the nickname Sons of Thunder. So these are not benign, like... Didn't know, notice them disciples. These eggs, I would have, I mean, we're going to get to hang out with them one day. But it, it would have been interesting to hang out with them. The sons of thunder. And here they are thundering their opinions uh, and their questions. Look at the audacity of this question. They come up to Jesus. Now, what do they say? Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. You know what that sounds like? 
my prayer life. Probably sounds like yours as well. Lord Jesus, yak, 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 this is what I want you to do for me. I felt so convicted when I read that. Like, teachers, this is what I want you to do for me. Because it sounds like my prayer life. So as much as we can bomb on James and John, and we, and we should, uh, this is, we're looking in a mirror here in this text. We're looking in a mirror. If we had the option, which we do in prayer, to come before Jesus, those words would come out of our mouth. This is actually what I want you to do for me. And don't you love Jesus? Compassionate, gracious, amazing king. He doesn't dump on them and say, you clowns. How much longer have I got with you? He actually engages them and he says, well, what, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And they ask him, we want to sit at your right and your left hand in glory. What's at the heart of their question here? They want, they want prominence. They want comfort. They want power. In their minds, uh, they've just heard Jesus explain what's going to happen to him and he's going to rise from death three days later. They're still thinking he's a Messiah and he's going to establish an earthly kingdom. He is going to be the man who runs the show, the, the coming of the kingdom, the Messiah. Finally, here we go. And we don't want to miss out on what's coming in this next phase. So let's secure for ourselves right and left seats. You know? We don't want to just be amongst the rank and file. You know, we've been disciples, but we want to sit on the, sort of the assistance to the throne with Jesus. So let's, let's MacGyver a plan to ask Jesus and just lock our seats in there, like dibs our seats. Like if you've got kids, uh, you know what this is exactly like. If you've got more than one kid, you know that there's always the battle. I want to sit in that seat. I want to sit in that seat. Dibs, dibs, dibs. We banned the word dibs in our house. I said, you can dibs. You can get dibs living on the pavement if you're going to carry on like this. We share things in this house. You can get dibs in anything like that. Anyway, just working through all of my stuff. This is che- cheaper than counseling. I just get to vent every Sunday. In their hearts is this desire for prominence and for comfort and and they are so devious about it that you see again and again, particularly again in the Gospel of Mark, Peter, James, and John are mentioned together. Peter, James, and John. Jesus is always pulling them aside. They're like a, a closer group within the broader disciples. Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. They mention, now it's just James and John. The brothers have decided there's only two seats, left and right. We're going to have to launch Peter. Sorry. <laughs> Blood is thicker than water. Peter's gone. It's not Peter, James, and John. It's James and John. Siding up to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, uh, can you do this for us? And we're appalled at their, at their question. You keep reading, and the disciples find out what James and John have done. And what happens? It says they are indignant with them. They are bleak with the brothers for trying to secure the spot. But they're only bleak because they didn't think of it before, James and John. Am I right? They are. That, that, that's what it, the, the thrust of this thing. They're just like, you would never try and secure the seats for yourselves and not us. They, all of them together miss it. And it puts us in such great company with the disciples. Because you'll, this is in your heart. This is your default setting is to prefer yourself over others. To look out for your own interests more than the interests of others. This is your natural wiring, your automated setting. Um. And yet, God has compassion on us. And it's so encouraging that these are, the, these are the disciples that Jesus calls to himself after a night of prayer. These are not straight random also mentions. These are the ones who the foundation of the church is built on them, and yet they have this in them. 
this preferring themselves over others so easily. And you should be deeply encouraged that what God can do in them, he can do it in us. He can transform this kind of selfishness, and we'll see as the story unfolds what God actually does with these guys. But don't be surprised when you see this kind of stuff popping up in your own heart, this self-centeredness versus an other-centeredness. But Jesus is, well, this passage is making it clear that servanthood in the way of following Jesus focuses on others, not on yourself. But you will start there, and you have to recognize that and own that and say, it's just so easy for me to prefer my own needs over the needs of others. You don't need to be taught how to do that. The second thing that following in the way, servant and following in the way of Jesus is, is that it's about um, self, being self-aware, not self-confident. Being self-aware, not self-confident. Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you, are you able to drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able. They told him, sure thing, we can do that. It's probably worth exploring this. What is Jesus talking about with this cup, drinking this cup and this baptism? Well, the imagery of cups all the way through scriptures is there's, there's cups of celebration and joy and associated with wine and blessing and goodness. And there's cups of wrath and suffering. And that's what Jesus is talking about in the cup thing here. And you fast forward to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is in agony and he's praying, if this cup can be taken from me, let it, let it pass from me. Because this is the hardest thing he's ever had to do, is drink the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. And he says, if, 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 if there's another way for this to happen, let it happen. But whatever you want, I'm submitting my will to, to your will. So it's that cup that he's talking about. The, the baptism there, it's not, it's not what we did a couple of weeks ago. It's not that baptism. The uh, baptism here and the wording in the original means being overwhelmed, overcome. And Jesus, that's what was about to happen with his life. He was about to be overcome with misery and grief. And his life itself was about to be like flooded, basically, and just consumed. And there is pictures here. It's amazing how the scriptures work about cup and baptism. Those are the two ordinances that we have. We've explored them in the last few weeks. Um, But being overwhelmed, Jesus says, this is coming for me. I'm going to be drinking this cup of God's wrath, and my life will be completely overcome. It's necessary in order to be a ransom for many. And he says to them, this is is what's coming down the pipeline. And And he asks them, can you do that? And what's their answer? Of course. Sure, they can do it. Sure, we can drink a cup and we can go with that baptism. Again, you're in such good company with the disciples because that's the pattern of my own life. I often overpromise and underdeliver with God. I've made the most outlandish promises to God, thinking that I could do X, Y, and Z. And I'll definitely do this, God, and I'll definitely do this, and I'll be this kind of person, or whatever else, and doesn't doesn't often materialize. Their answer Yes, we can. For sure. Not a problem, God. Not a problem, Jesus. This is the difference between being self-aware and self-confident. They're backing themselves. They have self-confidence. They don't have self-awareness. They don't have self-awareness. They have forgotten what Jesus taught them. What did he say? Apart from me, you can do nothing. I'm still on a mission to find a tattoo that's worth getting tattooed on and injured for and that's like a passage a scripture that 
always floats up near the top of the selection list. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Because I don't know about you, but I need a daily, hourly reminder that apart from Jesus Christ, I can do nothing. I have nothing to bring to the table. I'm not sharp enough, not wise enough, not educated enough, I'm not faithful enough. I don't have what I need to do to be, to add anything into the mix. Apart, when Jesus said, apart from me, you could do nothing, it's really what he meant. There's no hidden kind of language in there. Outside of the grace of God and the work of Jesus in you, you have nothing to bring to the party. And I want to remind you, friends, that self-confidence will kill your spiritual life and your fruitfulness. A growing confidence in yourself will kill your ability to be effective for God. A growing self-awareness that apart from God you can do nothing will bring about, focus here, will bring about a God confidence in you, which is very, very different to a self-confidence. A God confidence you should have and need. When you assess your identity and who you are correctly in him, you should expect that God would do great things with your life, exceptionally fruitful things with your life because it's, he's the one doing it. It's not about you because you're not apart from any him anymore you're with him it's him doing the work through you have great confidence that god would do amazing things in and through your life but it's a god confidence not a self-confidence and it comes from a self-awareness that apart from him you have nothing to bring the disciples don't get that but this is what it means to follow jesus and to be um, a, a true disciple the next thing is that it involves Suffering versus comfort. It involves suffering versus comfort. Jesus says, you you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. You will encounter suffering and you will be overcome. And it works out differently for James and John. James doesn't even make it to the end of the book of Acts. He gets killed with a sword and we're not sure. It doesn't say he was beheaded. That would have been the normal practice back then, depending on who killed him whether it's the Romans or the Jews who killed him. But he, he died by the sword. He, he didn't live much longer past this, a few years past this encounter with Jesus, and he was done. John lives longer, but his is a, is a troubled life. It's not full freedom. There's a lot of suffering that comes uh, in John's life. I mean, Jesus says, yeah, it is going to happen. There's one, there's one thing that Jesus promises again and again and again throughout the Gospels is what? Difficulty and presence. Difficulty and presence. If you follow me, it's going to be difficult. It's going to involve hardship. People will hate you because they hated me. It's going to involve suffering, persecution, internal war and struggle, but I will be with you. Two things equally true. I'm not taking you out of the world. I'm leaving you in it. It's going to be exceptionally hard at times, but I will be with you. Those are like the surest promises Jesus makes. He doesn't say, I'm going to flatten out the road. It's going to be easy. You're going to be like skipping through the daisies. The only thing he almost overpromises is that it's going to be hard. And so if you find in following Jesus to be difficult, there's, there's heat from your family. There's pressure at work. Your colleagues think you're a nutcase. Your, your, your old friends think you're mad for following Jesus. You've had to make difficult ethical and moral decisions because of your faithfulness to Jesus and that they've cost you at work, they've cost you friendships and stuff. You are doing Christianity the right way. 
you are following exactly what Jesus said. Is this exactly what it's going to look like? It says, woe to you if everyone speaks well of you. If you can't think of people who are opposed to you because of your Christian faith, you've probably got it under wraps. It's not sticking out enough. Woe to you if everybody speaks well of you. They will hate you because they hated me. If that is your current situation, keep going. Keep going because your eyes are fixed on him and you're following him. And what happened to him will happen to you. That's what he promises them. Suffering, not comfort. That's what it means to be a servant. James and John are just gunning for those seats left and right, reckoning that that will be a position of power and comfort will be above the fray. And Jesus says to them, Chapter, it's gonna, it's gonna be rough. It's gonna be rough for you. But it's gonna be rough for all of them. I will be with you. Because I will be in you. That's why he sends the Spirit. The last thing that we see here is that servanthood in the way of Jesus is all upside down. It's all upside down. You talk to people that you know, mates, colleagues, whatever, friends about Jesus' model of servanthood and what you see in the scriptures here, and it's completely the wrong way around. Everything in the culture is trying to disciple you that you should get ahead, put yourself first, self-care, stand up for yourself, get ahead. You're not being taught again and again to put yourself at the back of the queue, to come, become the servant of all. Everything in the culture is flipping that around. And Jesus, back then, is turning it upside down. Servanthood in the way of Jesus turns everything upside down. And he says it there. He says, the Gentiles amongst you, they lord it over others and they act like tyrants. They get given positions of power and authority and they use it to terrorize people over them. It's a self-aggrandizing thing. They're only in it for themselves and they lord it over people. Now, Some of you may be describing your current or previous boss something. You know, we've all experienced people like that. You give them some power and authority and they just want to lord it over, over you. It feels like what the Department of Home Affairs is like most of the time when I have to go and visit there. They've got some authority, some power, and they just want to put it over you. He says, that's the Gentiles. And then there's a verse that says, not so among you. That's how they're all going to do it. They're going to gun for positions of power and authority, but amongst you. Those of you who follow me, not so among you. That's not what I'm calling you to. Here's what I'm calling you to. You want to be first, it means you're going to be last. You want to be greatest, it means you're going to be the least. And that involves becoming the servant of all. Whoever wants to become great among you will become will be a servant. And whoever wants to be first will be a slave to all. Those words stick with us. Let's dig into that a little bit because they stick with us. A slave to all. We would agree with this on some levels, wouldn't we? I'm happy to serve lots of people. I'm happy to serve lots of people. Don't come with this slave to all kind of stuff. I've got a limit. I've got a limit. And so do you. You do. Because like mine, your heart is wicked. And you will have people that fall outside of your serving ambit. They don't deserve your serving. They don't deserve for you to be their slave. They are not worthy of you serving them because you are 
Here it is, you're above them. In your own internal righteousness grid, you're above them, so it's impossible for you to serve them because they should be serving you. They're either not good enough people, not educated, whatever, they're the wrong color, whatever it is, you've, everyone's got the internal grid of the people that they are, are off limits for them to serve. That's where This is controversial stuff, what Jesus is saying. He says, you want to follow me. This is how it works. You become the servant of all. Because what is he doing? He's leading the way. He's leading the way. He's not asking us to do something he hasn't done and, and led the way in. He's asking us just to follow him in what he has done. And how, how has Jesus been able to be the servant of all? How? This is it. He knows who he is. He knows who he is. He knows that he has the name that is above every other name. He is the glorious, eternal king of heaven. There's no one more worthy, no one more magnificent, no one more powerful than him. And he is completely secure in his identity. And so when he comes into the world, he comes in not mid-table, not even sort of lower middle class. He says, I come in as the servant of all. He comes to serve every single last human, deserving, undeserving, worthy, not worthy. He's able to serve them all because he's secure in, who, in his actual identity. And he's able to lay that aside and come and to serve for the greater good of them. You will never, ever be able to serve other people unless you become secure that your identity is in Jesus Christ. Because if your identity is in having to make a name for yourself and get ahead and protect your own advancement and your own comfort and all that stuff, you're going to hit those limits all over the place. You will not be able to serve because it's going to be doing something that's going to cost you. And it's going to knock you down the pecking order in your own head and your own heart. You're going to run into a brick wall there. When you lean into the fact that your identity is in Jesus, in him you have everything that you need. You have all the affirmation that you need. You have all the provision that you need. You have everything that you need. That's what the scriptures tell us. You have everything you need in Jesus. The more our hearts are soaked in that truth, you're able to become the servant of all. Because we realize we're swept up in his calling to do that, to follow him as he serves. I know this is, some of you are looking at me thinking, it sounds nice, but I'm not, somebody else can do that whole serving everyone kind of thing. It's interesting that God gives us real-time opportunities for this to play out. And it's been interesting this last week on social media, everyone's got some kind of random post about the coronavirus or whatever else. Some of my pastor friends are all digging up through church history and seeing how the church responded again and again throughout the centuries when plagues, I'm not going to call this a plague, uh, I don't know, maybe I, should I? Where are all the doctors? Is this a plague or not? I don't know. I don't want to use the, the P word here when I shouldn't. Pandemic or this pandemic. But when there's been plagues in history, how have the church responded? And again and again, you've seen the church serving the world at great cost to themselves. Because we know where our identity is. We know what's true. And we know where we're going. There will be, there will be many, many Christians who will lay down their lives to serve others because they are secure in who they are. They know their identity. They know their eternity is secure. They're able to lay down their lives for the flourishing of others. Other people don't do that. They don't do that willingly. They don't do that without fear. 
believers in Jesus do that because there's a security that comes in that identity. And you've seen it again and again throughout church history. I have no doubt we will see it again. I have no doubt we'll see it again. Have a look at that last verse there as we close this out. Verse 45, for even, this is Jesus wrapping this up. He says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, which would have made perfect sense. Would have made perfect sense. But to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is Jesus coming into the world. He's giving us the the reason for his arrival. He comes to ransom us, to pay for our freedom. He came to pay for your freedom with his life. It cost him everything. He held nothing back in it. He doesn't just say, hey, it'd be a good idea if you served each other. I want to encourage you guys to be the servants of all. Jesus comes and he does. He does it in the most extravagant way that will never ever be repeated. He's not even asking us to do that for others. That's a one-time thing that only he is able to do. But he's not just talking a good game. He is living it out laying down his life to redeem us back to himself. And if you are here this morning and you wouldn't necessarily say that you're a Christian, you haven't started following Jesus, you haven't made a decision to do that yet, this is the truth of what it's about. That Jesus Christ came in the world to win you back to himself and it cost him his entire life. Innocent as it was, he laid it down for you so that you would know life and be able to love him and follow him and and enjoy him and be with him forever. This is what servanthood is like. And like I said, as you respond to that, it's not that Jesus makes the road flat ahead of you. It's going to be lots of bumps and potholes and stuff. It's going to be like driving around in Joburg. It's going to be hard. You're going to hit the potholes all over the place. It's going to be difficult because Jesus promises that, but he will be with you in the midst of it. And if you are... If you're a believer here this morning, I want us to spend some time just in quiet as we close this out. And I want you to sit and think, Lord, where am I running into the walls? Where am I running into the walls in the people that you're calling me to serve? Which people are off limits? And allow the Holy Spirit to do something in our hearts. Because there will be people off limits. And God wants to move us. He wants to do something in your heart to say, look, I'm calling you to be the servant of all. You, you say you follow me, then I want you to follow me like I lead. And I lead by being the servant of all. And I'm calling you and I'm commanding you to do the same. Not to serve when it's preferable or beneficial for you. That's the worst kind of serving that we can do. And we're so guilty of it, aren't we? Serve when we look good. Serve when there's a kickback to us. Or serve when you can Instagram it. And then everyone thinks, you're amazing. Look how tender-hearted and kind and generous and whatever else you are. That's the worst kind of serving. It's parading our deeds for the praise of men. Jesus says, that is the, the, that is the absolute pit because you've received your praise in full. It's, it's an empty kind of serving. Where are you running into the walls? Which people are off limits? It may be people who've hurt you. Maybe people super close to you that you say, I cannot serve them. No ways. They've hurt me. They've wronged me. There's no chance. You, my friends, you need the grace of God. You need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit to soften what's hard and to empower you to follow Jesus in this way. So let's pray. Let's pray together for that.
Father, we thank you that you search all things. You know us completely. There's nothing in our lives or in our hearts that's hidden from you. Everything is just laid bare uh, before you. And we pray that now, as your word says, through the Holy Spirit, you would be searching us. Search out our hearts. Speak to us. Convict us. Bring, up, bring us a people to mind. Bring their faces and their names before us uh, or categories of people where we're running into, into that wall of not being able to serve them. Jesus, we want to be followers of yours, true followers who, who follow you. And we ask for your grace now. Search us as we sit in, in the quiet now. Come and, come and speak and come and show us things in our hearts that need attention this morning. We, we confess, Father, that we're so much more like James and John than we are like you so often. We, we desire power and comfort and control and recognition and the way of servanthood and becoming last and least seems unattractive to us most of the time. And yet, that's the path that you walked and you lead us down. And so we pray that you would pour out the Holy Spirit on us to soften our hearts, to give us a picture of the true freedom that comes in following you in this. That again this morning you would be reminding us of our identity, our union with you, that we are united to you. We have everything we already need in you. We don't have to make a name for ourselves. It's okay for us to serve the world and be forgotten if it's to the glory of God. Help us to lead you where you're following us. Help us to uh, follow you to the people that you're leading us to serve. Give us grace in this area. We need so much of the Holy Spirit's help and your tenderness and your power in this. And so we pray, please, would you do it? Do it for us individually. Do it for us as a church together. Please, Father.